from WPVMLP in Asheville. It's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And this is Gabrielle Cohen. for the better part of a decade, which meant I got to visit the city a couple times a year. As someone who travels a lot, one of the things that struck me was how little time I would spend in other people's homes when in the Big Apple. I would venture to say that the vast majority of trips I take to any city, at least several meals are spent eating at a friend's kitchen table. But I can only think of a single home-cooked meal I've ever had in all my time spent in New York, Thanksgiving dinner in 2007. I think there are several reasons for New Yorkers' aversion to dinner parties. The tiny matchbox size of most apartments, the usually sparse submarine-like kitchens, not to mention the overabundance of incredible food available in every neighborhood. When Peter Hoffman moved from Ohio to New York City, he was struck by the same conundrum. No matter how hard he tried to throw dinner parties or cook for friends, it was always a failure. Nevertheless, he persisted. I love so much about living in Manhattan. It was all I'd wanted since I was under the age of 10. None of it disappointed. Frenzied people, loud traffic, the glamour and the grit. I love the parts that maybe you weren't supposed to love. Like the heat that hits your face at full force when you're waiting for that delayed subway in July. Or the way a rat might scurry across your basement while you're doing laundry. It just meant to me that I was in New York. 
There was one thing about living in New York that really bothered me, and it bothered me because I couldn't and still can't figure out why I couldn't find a solution. That thing, that problem that has troubled me and kept me up at night, is why I can never host a successful dinner party in my apartment. Dinner parties seem to be ingrained in my blood. Growing up in Ohio, my parents hosted at least one per week, ranging from casual homemade pizza parties with neighbors next to my mother's tall zinnia patch to more formal events when my dad's business friends came into town. Either way, those dinners taught me the importance of polishing silver, choosing wine, the difference between Gorgonzola and Roquefort, loud music during cocktails that soften during dinner, and most important of all, bringing people together. Bringing people together in New York City uh, proved to be the hardest thing for me to achieve, and it was the one thing I desperately yearned for. You may be thinking that perhaps I should have found new friends in New York, and perhaps you wouldn't be wrong. But I have analyzed everyone that I ever invited in my apartment and found them all to be mostly adequate, and certainly fine dinner party invitees who just didn't want to slow down and have me cook them a meal. First of all, there seem to be lots of diets happening around me in New York. Vegetarianism is one thing, I can certainly handle and appreciate making a meatless meal that will satiate even the most aggressive carnivores, but that's not the type of diet I encountered. People were eating only seeds on Tuesdays, red foods on Wednesdays, leaves and lemon juice on the second Friday of every third month. It was impossible to keep track of, let alone to try and accommodate. I worked for a prominent bakery in the city, which also meant that it was difficult to host the gluten-free crowd. So a lot of people I would invite either worked in restaurants or had to attend new hotspots as a part of their job. And so maybe the thought of a meager dinner chez moi paled in comparison. But I don't think it really did. Before everything shut down, the restaurants were all trying to outdo each other. And at mine, you'd be able to sample two bottles of California's finest Pinot Noir and learn that the winter demi-sec champagne and a nice clementine is better than a dessert that's been whipped and frosted to smithereens. Okay. So most restaurants my friends would go to weren't in Hell's Kitchen and on the top floor of a five-floor walk-up, but did those restaurants slap them with air conditioning and hand them a crisp thimble of rosé or a big G&T with a fat lime in the summer to thank them for making the trek? I don't think so. I can understand not wanting to commute from deep in Brooklyn, Greenpoint, wherever, so one day I thought I had my problem figured out. I decided to invite my friend for brunch. This was a foolproof way to avoid common pitfalls. She would have enough time to get there and to get home. She wouldn't have an event that evening, and we'd be done by two or three in the afternoon. Of course, the night before I was prepping cheddar biscuits to go with the frittata, my power went out. And it stayed out for six hours. This meant that the butter, which should remain cold to ensure flaky biscuits, did not in fact stay cold. The next morning when the power was back on, my friend showed up late because she had spent the morning having sex and proceeded to drink the Bloody Marys I'd made and then snored on my couch for the next two hours, unshakable. Speaking of sex, at my parents' home, it isn't unusual for people to stop by just for dessert. Often my friends will bring a cake they had made with their kids, or if they have their own dinner plans, they'll come by for a digestif and a cookie. Unfortunately, I found that this is not common practice in New York. I once innocently asked someone if they wanted to come over for dessert. Again, working at a bakery, I was often bringing home tarts and cookies and often baked cakes which needed to be shared. Unfortunately to this person, dessert really meant sex. And I'm not sure who was more shocked to learn what the other was really meaning. And I'm certainly glad I hadn't made banana cream pie. Right now I'm looking for a new apartment in New York after a long respite back at my parents' home. It's been a weird year for everyone, of course, but at least at their house I've been able to bring back dinner parties. 
good old-fashioned dinner parties that I had craved for so long. Parties in the summer with fireflies and laughter, and in the winter with fire in the fireplace and big bowls of citrus as decoration, with people sneaking in through the garden gate and my dad bringing out a special liqueur to pass around. In my new apartment, my main requirement is that I can fit a round table to fit six people. My continuing aspiration is to have successful dinner parties. It might be in my head, but I hope that this time away from people has made my friends crave the parties that I'm offering. That was Jordan Adams reading Peter Hoffman's The Lost Dinner Party. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 20 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
side effects of the COVID-19 pandemic and the subsequent lockdowns was a seemingly diasporic influx of well-to-do remote workers to picturesque cities and towns around the country. We've talked at length about the housing crisis that has been caused in Asheville from wealthy outsiders moving into town from major cities driving up housing costs. Asheville wasn't alone in this curse, as tourist meccas around the country suddenly became havens for the wealthy looking to wait out the pandemic. When the pandemic finally convinced writer Zanny Stefkin to abandon the service industry, she turned her pen to her colleagues in the service industry to document what restaurant work had been like during the height of the pandemic in the ski village of Telluride, Colorado. Here's her story in Telluride. Up until March of 2020, life in the small ski town of Telluride, Colorado may have seemed like a dream come true for restaurant workers. First, there were the mountains. Towering peaks form a box canyon that hems in the historic town. Then there were the numerous outdoor recreation areas accessible within just a short drive. Everything from ski slopes and mountain biking trails to hiking paths and lakes teeming with fish. As far as work goes, restaurant employees enjoyed excellent pay, thanks to the crowds of wealthy tourists that filter through the town each winter and summer, and three months off each year in between seasons. Then COVID pounced on the town in spring of 2020, bringing along with it the biggest crowds Telluride had ever seen and leaving fear and uncertainty in its wake. After working in restaurants for five years, two of which were in Telluride, I left my job as an assistant general manager of a fine dining eatery in April of 2021. While there were many factors involved in my decision to quit, perhaps the greatest was my experience of restaurant work during the pandemic, when the novel stresses of adhering to a flux of COVID regulations were coupled with the crush of people coming in the door each evening. To put it kindly, some guests were less than understanding about our situation. These challenges came along with ever-present worries for my safety and job security. Even for those food and beverage workers who were not driven to quit their jobs during this time, the pandemic has been rife with challenges and unforeseen burdens. I sat down with three restaurant employees in Telluride to get their take on this last year and a half. Luke is the general manager of a fine dining bistro. There was a time when I thought all restaurants might end up having clothes. We made it through, which was really, really surprising, honestly. Luke is telling me about the challenges and rewards this era has brought him as a restaurant manager. It's been a long and winding road since the town's initial lockdown and stay-at-home order during the second week of March 2020. With one month left until the end of the winter season, all business in Telluride ground to a halt. 
Restaurants opened again for dine-in service two months later, but were limited to 50% capacity with no bar seating. Throughout the rest of 2020 and early 2021, regulations shifted by the week, ranging from outdoor dining only during the holidays to 75% capacity in the spring. Restaurants this summer have remained open for dine-in service at 100% capacity, despite a spike in COVID cases. A mask mandate for the small town of nearly 3,000 was imposed early and then lifted this past June, only to be put back in place in September. Luke continues. Challenges would be, obviously, having to be the enforcer. Even though it's a statewide or countywide mandate, it falls upon the shoulders of the employees to be the enforcement on things like that. And in the restaurant industry, your main goal is to provide a high-quality level of service and having to be the person who's the bearer of bad news, if you will, regarding telling someone to put their mask on is kind of challenging, you know? It's like there are these moments where you're trying to be friendly with these people and amicable, and you also have to be kind of brash with them regarding mask wearing or any other mandates. Rewards... I mean, we made it through. <laughs> Additionally, we figured some stuff out. At, at my particular venue, we made things happen. We added seating and ended up this summer with more seats than we've ever had for what is the busiest summer we've had on the books yet. The challenges, I think, outweighed the rewards this time around, but making it through, in theory, that kind of felt like an accomplishment. Kaylee is a fine dining server. She adds... Honestly, with the volatility of everything in the world, there were many times that I was just thankful to have a job at all. <laughs> I, I switched restaurants in the middle of the peak of the pandemic because my previous restaurant job of nearly four years told me that I couldn't have a second job and keep my employment there. Having two jobs is somewhat standard for those working in Telluride. Not only does life there push the limits of the meaning of the word affordable, but a severe labor shortage caused by a housing crisis has also meant that there's a surplus of work to go around. During this last year and a half, employees felt the pressure to step up. Colleen, a line cook, says, I've always been a workaholic, but the pandemic has taken it to a new level, mainly because I feel guilty. Everyone's understaffed and coverage is hard to come by, so I never want to take time off. I have a very hard time saying no. People are working themselves too thin, especially when, like myself, they have two jobs. Kaylee jumps in, saying, I would say Telluride's getting steadily busier and busier, in fact. I'm not sure how much busier it can get. It's easier than ever to get a job in fine dining here, as long as you have a place to live, and almost every restaurant is grossly understaffed. I mean, basically, every night of service throughout the summer was, for lack of a better word, a beating. Late nights, incredibly high volume, but it was better money than ever. The owner of the restaurant that I work for had her most profitable month ever last month, shattering her previous all-time record, which was set the month prior. While major cities in the U.S. became plague-ridden ghost towns, Telluride was experiencing its busiest seasons yet. When a good chunk of the country's workforce was pushed into remote work, thousands of Americans fled cities for remote areas with a slower pace of life. Second homeowners, who before only spent a few weeks of the year in ski towns, transferred their lives full-time to the mountains, and people who could afford to move from COVID hotspots picked up and headed for these small towns. Luke says, This is a 1% town. I think a major challenge was the Zoomers, who all came in and bought up all the housing, driving the housing prices up and pushing any long terms out of the picture. If you can do your job via Zoom in New York, but live here in Telluride, why wouldn't you? Why would you stay in a city when you can come here in these beautiful mountains and do your job online? That's a no-brainer. But when you can afford $20,000 for the whole winter for rent, there goes housing. Kaylee adds, 
I think all resort towns, small towns, or even desirable areas of big cities are experiencing similar circumstances. I think if anything, the fact that we're in such a beautiful setting improves the experience. Sitting outside is stunning and it's preferable in the summer anyway. People are generally pretty happy to be here. And when people are on vacation, they're in a better mood. And post-lockdown, people seem to be more thankful for eating out than ever. Recently, two Hallmark eateries in Telluride closed their doors. The closure was not due to a lack of business, but rather a staff shortage during a time when crowds of visitors were unrelenting. Even if employers have little control over the lack of affordable housing behind the labor shortage, they have begun taking steps towards positive change more within their reach. Kaylee notes, Many restaurants are working to offer more traditional benefits, like cheaper insurance and bonuses, paid training, etc., because they know that they have to work harder if they want to retain their employees and help them be able to afford to live here. But are these actions enough? Or too little too late? And can these additional benefits compensate for how grueling the work has become? Personally, I struggled with meeting the needs of demanding guests in a time when COVID placed obstacles in my way. Restaurant work often felt like an uphill battle as we were all spread thin in an effort to keep everyone safe and happy. Luke adds, I would think that the guests receive different service. For example, in the past, we used to package up to-go food in the back. Moving forward, it was like, okay, this plate was on the table. We're not going to bring it in the back until it's completely empty so we can put it in the dishwasher where it's going to get completely clean. So we would bring a box out. I think the level of service definitely depleted a little bit. It, it suffered in some ways. And yeah, the pandemic definitely affected my motivation a little bit more. There was a little bit more dread going in because you know that you have all of these tasks and you know you have to be the mask enforcement as well as the sommelier. Like, those two jobs are not at all the same. That was something on my mind every day. Like, how am I going to address this? And we kept reviewing what the mandates were. So what's it going to be next week? Are we going to have more spacing, less spacing, 50% capacity, 75% capacity? Wine and alcohol cut off at 10 p.m., 9 p.m.? Food cut off at 9 p.m., not 10 p.m.? I was required to do different tasks that previously weren't on my shoulders, including, but not limited to, walking around sanitizing the doorknobs. I mean, that's something that has not ever been done, ever. And now it's a commonplace practice. We used disposable menus for all of winter 2020. That was wild. That was not something I had ever expected to do at a fine dining restaurant. Colleen says, This summer has been brutal for me, I will not lie. But with all that, I think I've grown closer with a lot of coworkers, and uh, I've gotten opportunities I wouldn't have had. There were definitely negatives to come from this, but, uh, but from my two spots, people really bonded together to try and get through all the craziness. This last year has for sure made me want to break down after service, like, way more than before. But, uh, but I've really learned a lot. And I made some really great friends. Uh, honestly, I wouldn't want to change any of it. Except maybe possibly add a couple more days off in there, here and there. <laughs> Another aspect of working in restaurants during a pandemic was the burden of knowing what was at stake. First, there was a fear of the deadly toll COVID could take if it spread within our restaurant. There was the anxiety that accompanied serving people without masks on and the understanding that the establishment could close at any moment. Then there was the threat to financial security. With shift work, if an employee is contact traced and sent to quarantine, they lose their income for all of the shifts they missed. While a law passed in the midst of the pandemic required employers to issue paychecks for any hours of work missed due to COVID-related reasons, those paychecks were just a fraction of what they might have been had an employee actually worked. Kaylee notes... At first, of course, in the immediate aftermath of the lockdown, I think we were all scared. 
No one knew quite what the virus could do to us. I didn't want to be forced to work in close proximity with other people who might be sick. And the vaccine definitely changed my willingness and comfort with being in close proximity to unmasked patrons. And now it doesn't really bother me much at all. I know there's, of course, a chance of a breakthrough infection. And and while I don't want to get sick, it doesn't feel as mysterious and life-threatening as it did before. As an otherwise very healthy individual, I no longer feel that restaurant work is risky or like being on the front lines like I used to. Luke adds, We could close at any moment. We could be shut down at any moment and we never knew. March 13th, 2020, closed. That was it. Nobody ever saw that coming. We lost out on a month of service. That's make or break for people who either way had an upcoming month of closure in this town. Fortunately, I think everybody made it through, but... And I remember when the vaccines were first rolling out and people were fully vaccinated by the time they were coming into the restaurant. I was mind blown by that. They got access. We got pushed. I remember when service employees got pushed back. We were behind multiple industries that I was surprised were allowed to get vaccinated first. And I don't want to discredit any professions, but the fact that restaurant workers and dentists are the only people who are required to work with their clients and their clients don't have a mask on and we weren't prioritized... Since my personal experience with pandemic restaurant work prodded me towards the decision to quit, I asked these restaurant employees if their experience had affected their relationship to the job. Colleen. Honestly, I don't think my relationship to my job's changed. I always do too much, and I still very much love what I'm doing. I've learned different ways to look at things, which is interesting. It's helpful. As a yet, I'm not jaded, but uh, depending on how much longer the pandemic lasts, (laughs) that might change. (laughs) Who knows anymore? Luke, I think that I've become more cognizant of cleanliness. I I mean, I've been in the restaurant industry for 22 years now. It's not like having clean hands is new to me, but having to wear a mask through dinner service? All of that is so new. It was all all so new for all of us. I think I'm going to do a lot of things differently now. I'll never wait in a queue the same way. I will probably refrain from dining inside a restaurant as much as possible. Right now, I pretty much only dine outside unless I can find an edge table. I haven't been to the movies, and I am not planning on going to the movies anytime soon. Because I know I have three months off a year. Being that I have two months off coming up right now, I don't even want to jeopardize that. I don't want to go into a theater in late October and then leave town and be sick and not know it. Or be sick and not be able to enjoy those months off. Kaylee. I wouldn't say that it necessarily affected my personal motivation to work, but it did make me torture myself with questioning my career path. I I still am. Very few people, at least in front of the house positions, do this kind of work for the passion. Most people do it for the quick, low-commitment money, daytime freedom, and always with the hopes that they'll eventually be able to have enough of a financial cushion to take action towards something else. There's always that great something else waiting out there that everyone's striving for, or at least thinking about. I'm looking forward to transitioning to a something else now more than ever. Not because of the rude guests, simply because of more time to reflect on my position and my future. But it's really hard to make a change. Serving is still golden handcuffs for me. Last but not least, I wanted to hear, what do you wish guests knew before coming in the door? Luke answered, I wish that they knew that their actions affect everyone around them. Their choice not to wear a mask or not get vaccinated has nothing to do with them. It has to do with your server, who is then interacting with the table next to them, who's then interacting with their friends and their family way outside of the restaurant. I had someone tell me they were dissatisfied with where they were seated last summer. 
And I had to reiterate to this person that almost a million people have died from this pandemic and the fact that you're dissatisfied with where you're sitting in a restaurant is your biggest concern? That's my thought. It's not just about you. And I understand, when you go out to a restaurant, you are supposed to feel like you're the only person there. But that's not the way it is. There's a whole back of the house that you don't even see. And then there's this whole subculture that exists. There's the prep guy who's there at seven in the morning until noon. There's the kitchen staff. There's a dishwasher who's there until midnight, soaking wet in their clothes. And that doesn't register to you. What registers to you is my seat was drafty one autumn evening. Kaylee said, no one in the service industry wants to enforce the rules. We, we don't care if you believe in masks or in vaccines. We're not here to make this political. We're not here to fight with you or to get yelled at. Please give us a bit of patience. I know that you just ordered a $300 bottle of wine and foie gras, and I want to give you the best experience possible, but we are incredibly, incredibly busy. The manager who will be here to open your wine also has to seat tables, light heaters, greet guests, answer the phone, and generally keep the place afloat. And in addition to you, I have eight other tables, three of which just sat down in the last five minutes. Your lack of tips won't change the system if you don't believe in them. It'll simply ruin the rest of my night. And if it happens consistently enough, it's going to ruin the profitability of restaurant work enough so that more and more establishments will disappear. And it was just that, the future of restaurants, something that loomed in so many of our minds this year. That was Courtney DiGennaro Robinson reading Zanny Stefkin's In Telluride. You can find that story and all of our stories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. Standing in the spot where the last hit fell Your magnolia scent still lingers there They say I should wish you well Truth is, I really don't care. Do up, do up.
So, John, have you ever been dumpster diving? Yeah. You have? A good bit, actually. I, I, I mean, I was homeless for like a year and a half. I lived in my car. <gasps> That's and, right. Yeah. So I did dumpster diving a lot for mm-hmm. like probably about like two to three years. And it was like my primary way of getting food for a long time. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible to me how much stuff people throw out. I used to go to one particular grocery store in North Asheville that would leave stuff out um, on weeknights and it was fairly accessible. You know, I I don't think that this was a time when people really thought about folks getting into their dumpsters at like 3 a.m. And you would find all sorts of really great preserved food in there. I mean, you know, day old bread and fresh vegetables that had been slightly bruised. It was incredible to me how much was wasted. Yeah. I used to go like all the time. There were like several places that had dumpsters that weren't locked. I mean, most main grocery store chains, like during the recession, didn't lock their dumpsters. So we would just always go climb through and find stuff. And it was not even sketchy. Like most of the stuff was really in good condition. Yeah. It was the dairy you had to look out for. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's (laughs) part of the reason why I hardly consume dairy anymore is like, from that time, I was just conditioned to not trust the dairy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't trust the dairy. 
But what would what all would you get when you would when you would go? Oh, definitely produce because it was the good produce, you know, like organic stuff uh, that yeah. was expensive. I mean, you know, that's it's just really expensive to get. Um, definitely bread products, sweets. Oh, that was such a treat. <laughs> um, you know, I would typically stray away from meat um, most often, but. Then I would also just kind of like look for those, you know, some dry goods, but it was always, always came back to fresh fruit and vegetables. You can't beat it. Yeah. It's always so funny to me now when I see these ads for these places that like try to sell you the bruised produce, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm like, well, we used to get that for free out of the dumpster. (laughs) (laughs) Like we would just go, you know, wear your rain boots and jump in the dumpster and bring some bags and, uh, and, and try to try to put it together. And give everything a good wash when you get home. And it's just like new. Yeah. So when writer Zoe Grace Markdant found herself pinching pennies in the grocery store, she turned the supermarket's trash into her own treasure. Here's Amanda Phillips reading her story, Perishables. You're handed a laminated card with a number on it. You're not necessarily the 18th person in. The order has been thoroughly scrambled since mid-morning by the light, but constant foot traffic. They're just not at capacity yet, and you're somewhere in that number. You're offered a pump of hand sanitizer in a basket. Last week you bought pasta, canned tomatoes, kidney beans, dried chickpeas that need to soak so you better know hours beforehand that you'll want falafel later. Tea bags, cheap wine, bread, cheese on sale, a bar of dark chocolate to split between the five of you. Now when moving through the racks of pickles, tomato paste, and mustards, Past the open-air fridges and chest freezers, you keep your eyes on needs. Try not to think of wants, saliva, of fat and grease. Try not to look at the plump chips fluffed so they appear to be bursting from their shelves. The sleeve of assorted cookies with chocolate ribbons, wafer layers, jam centers. You're allowed to have some things, not everything. Alcohol, but no brand cereals. Side dishes with dinner, but no dessert. Not often. You're budgeting. Doing math in front of the eggs. You mentally cut things into servings, divvy it up, and try to guess if it'd feed everyone. And if so, more than once. You start buying ingredients in relative bulk instead from the agricultural supply place next to the river. It's closer. Milk and yogurt you get from the shop across from the apartment that's open late on Thursdays and Fridays. It's more expensive than the supermarket, but you cut down on travel time. You cut down on outings. After, you push a few tins to the back of the cabinets. Extras. Secrets. For emergencies. Birthdays. You live with two spring babies. You're not sure what it would look or feel like to celebrate in the given situation, but you squirrel away a can of peaches, some of the good sugar, and hold on to the idea. After all the stores have mopped their floors, you head back into town with Leo, leaving the other three at home. He has lights on his bike, goes first. You park near a practically disused kebab shop, meaning no cameras. You walk. A friend told you where you'd find the truck, backed up, almost flush with the building and full of produce, all bagged and ready to be trashed elsewhere. You don't know exactly what's inside. Every time, you keep your hopes simple. You'd only been inside the store once. It was the kind of place that had an in-house cafe, both a meat and fish counter, Banners of smiling farmers, a spare parts and repairs desk, some sort of promise to customers written prominently across one wall in cursive. A type of nice that you can only think about briefly before it becomes exorbitant, annoying, and unattainable. 
but that almost makes what you're about to do easier. There's a plastic chute as wide as your shoulders that leads to the truck's bumper. You have to be quiet. Travel backpack first and know which of three buttons is open and not close, or worse, light. You fish around with your toes, feeling your footholds, and hoist yourself in. Wide, wheelable bins as tall as your belly button are strapped to the walls. One bin has only empty detergent bottles. Another bin might just be paper. There's a mailbag. To the back, you can see the sheen and southern color pop of vegetable skin. You and Leo take turns sifting through the food, filling your backpacks. Heavy, bruise-resistant items at the bottom. Crushable, spillable, anything that could trickle or burst towards the top. You keep keys, wallet, anything important, anything identifying, anything you could accidentally drop in the small front pocket. You barely debate what to include. There's little you won't eat. Little you can afford to leave. A Hawaiian pizza, two burratas, miniature Roman cauliflower, regular-sized cauliflower, red and yellow bell peppers, endive, lamb's lettuce, bags of potatoes, ready-made pancakes, rosemary sprigs, croissants with salt and butter, a slightly punctured bag of flour, a container of sun-dried tomatoes, a mango, an avocado, bananas, finger-sized cucumbers, raspberries, blueberries, king oyster mushrooms, a pear, bags of oranges, cork, and something called Sunday bread. You chance it on a paper tray of burliners. You don't even really like donuts, but they look grainy with sugar. And what are the odds of getting food poisoning from something that's basically deep-fried preservatives? Cheesecake, fish fillets, pork chops are birthed from the abyss of bags within bags. You look at each other, and they're tossed back. Sometimes you get selective, separating the best of, carefully plucking the putrid, mold-ridden strawberry from within the box. You have a decent-sized, defendable-looking cabbage with the fewest scratches. Items that can be beautified, peeled back, made over, should anyone ask why you got it. You try not to get too excited. Try not to think of too many recipes in case something is soft on the inside, in case what you thought in the light of a headlamp was okay turns out to be profoundly rotten. Mostly it isn't, and you stand confused, turning a basket of grapes over in your hands, trying to decipher why it was discarded. No marks, smells, signs of expiration, no date. You take it and spin the ride home, thinking of ways to stretch each ingredient, renew and showcase it. Hold everyone's interest, again and again, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, breads, salads, soups, mashes, sautés, stir-fries, anything that can be served over rice. An assembly line of washing, cutting, sorting, freezing, and arranging forms at the kitchen table. Brown spots, molds, blemishes are paired off. Cellophane is peeled back and balled up next to the sink with the other recycling. You wonder whether or not anyone has ever touched this radicchio with a bare hand. If so, how long since? The compost bin quickly overflows with wilted leaves, stalks, peels, rinds. Soon there's a bowl of fruit in every room. After everything is organized, you strip and shower, not strictly because you sifted through garbage for a half an hour, but because somewhere in one of the bins a yogurt popped and slimed all over everything, including you. You wash the deep earth smell of roughage off your hands, check your clothes for stains that might need soaking. Oddly, you don't feel like you need to be deloused any further. You don't fear that you missed a spot or spore and now something sinister is breeding in that small patch of skin behind your ear. Somehow the truck felt clean, 
No obvious odors, puddles, reasons to think about the permeable nature of fabric and shoe rubber. Something non-threatening about the overcomplicated, almost scientifically sorted bins. The emptiness, the silence, compared to the flurry of hand wipes when you enter through the front door of any store. This took a fraction of the energy. There is no avoiding people, no calculations, no distances, no mental acrobatics of justifying choices, no guilt, just the act of caring. For the first time, maybe all year, the anxiety of time and health and money spends the night in someone else's body. The morning is in a few hours, and when it comes, you sit in the sunny all-meals room alone and slowly eat nothing but berries for breakfast. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 20 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, please visit dirty-spoon.com. I've known a lot of love and I've had some company But now I know your love and I'm where I'm supposed to be I took to you just like an arrow on the string Well I should have known one day you'd come for me Hard times pass us by. May hard times pass us by. There'll come a time when I am many miles away, but no, I'll. Follow you as evening follows day And when the sky breaks I'll raise my face to rain And I'll love you in sunlight or shade May hard times pass us by When the world is gray and our bodies old, when the forger's fire grows ash and cold, when the years drag on and yet pass us by. Above go silent with no singing. I'll stick with you just like the meal upon the wing, and we'll weather what the tides of life may bring. 
Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2021. 
All of the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Doza, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Papineau, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Gabrielle Cohen, Claro, Wetleg, Lily Konigsberg, Gabrielle's, Lyren, Tim Heidecker, Kruder and Dorfmeister, Ben Lovett, Spirituals, Paul Hanslinger, Mary Lattimore, and Seeger Ross. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM. <laughs>